Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Linnea Dominic, Curiosity Intern. For the past few weeks, we've featured neighborhood stories from our archives to coincide with our citywide scavenger hunt. This week, we look at a Chicago neighborhood institution, the Tavern. Since the pandemic began, there's been a lot of back and forth about whether to keep bars open and the different rules for how to do so safely. And some bars have struggled to stay in business after they were forced to close because of COVID. While the current conversation may be COVID-specific, Debates over the role of bars and communities have been going on for decades. To learn why there are fewer neighborhood bars than there used to be, and the role taverns have played in Chicago's communities, we return to a story from 2019. Reporter Jake Smith will take it from here. Patrick McBriarty likes to try out different bars around Chicago. One bar he liked was Schaller's Pump in Bridgeport, one of the oldest taverns in the city. But... Recently, he drove by and noticed it had closed down. It's something he's grown used to. Some of the favorite bars that I have gone to in the past are not around. And this phenomenon of disappearing bars, Patrick suspects it's been going on for a long time. Because he's heard it said that there was once a tavern on every corner in Chicago, which is clearly not the case today. So he came to Curious City to ask. What changed and why did that happen? This claim that Patrick has heard about a long-lost era when the city was stuffed with taverns, maybe it's a bit of an exaggeration. But there was a time when Chicago had more than 8,000 bars. That's about nine times as many as today. And it turns out their disappearance can tell us a lot about the city's shifting demographics, how its attitudes towards public drinking have changed, and the lasting influence of a powerful Chicago family. But first, Patrick and I wanted to know how there got to be so many bars in the first place. So, naturally, we met up at a tavern. Cheers. <laughs> Just shatter the glasses, right? Just uh, for radio. We sat down with historian Liz Garibay. It turns out there have been not one, but two different heydays of Chicago taverns. The first heyday came around 1900. Now, even at this point, there wasn't actually a bar on every corner, as Patrick had put it, but... There are certain places where you could have undoubtedly found a tavern on every corner of an intersection because it was relatively easy to get a liquor license. As Garibay explains, these saloons weren't just watering holes. They were major social hubs, places you could make friends, maybe find a job. And many of these bars catered to the predominant ethnic group in the neighborhood. So they were especially critical for new immigrants who were flocking to Chicago around this time. They may not be speaking English. Most of them didn't. And so at the end of the day, you want to be able to go to a bar where people speak like you, look like you, understand you. Which helps explain the tavern's popularity, at least until 1920, when Prohibition began. All the bars had to stop selling alcohol. But if you think that that was the beginning of the end for Chicago taverns, think again. Because after Prohibition, the bar scene picked right back up. 
people are very excited to drink again. You know, there's stories of people going to breweries, like hanging outside and shaking the fences. And so bars are clearly a big part of that. Throughout the 1930s, demand for bars kept growing, especially in working class parts of town. Incredibly, Wanda Couric can remember those days. So what do you want to know? Couric is the proprietor of Stanley's Tavern at 43rd and Ashland. She's 95 years old. Her father opened this bar in 1935 when Wanda and her siblings were kids. They gave free food away when it was a depression and then started to serve lunches. And we had to help, whether we liked it or not. By World War II, this strip of Ashland was lined with taverns. So much so, they called it Whiskey Row. The reason it was such a hot spot? The Union stockyards were right across the street. At the time, the stockyards employed thousands of workers. So, like most bars on the block, Stanley's would open at 7 a.m., seven days a week. Did people come in at 7 a.m.? Well, don't forget there were three shifts in the stockyards. So at 7 o'clock in the morning, the guys were leaving work because the others were starting, right? And there were a lot of areas like Whiskey Row around the city in the late 40s when the number of taverns peaked again. Couric says that those were busy, lucrative years on Whiskey Row. But this second heyday of Chicago taverns would not last. Everything just demolished after the stockyards moved out. In the 50s, blue-collar industries like meatpacking began leaving Chicago. And fewer jobs meant fewer customers for places like Stanley's. But it wasn't just that. By mid-century, the city's population had also begun to shrink as people flocked to the suburbs. Plus, technology was changing. Having a TV and a refrigerator meant you no longer had to leave home for a cold beer and some entertainment. Together, all these factors dried up the customer base for many taverns. Today, Stanley's is the only old bar on Whiskey Row that's still open. But the other big reason why the taverns disappeared involves a certain pair of Chicago mayors. And they both happen to have the same last name. Liz Garibay is, of course, talking about the Dailies. Richard J. Daly, the first one, became mayor in 1955. He was concerned with promoting a law and order image. And that meant taking on taverns that he believed were promoting drugs, prostitution, even violence. When he saw some seedier places, even in his own neighborhood of Bridgeport, you know, he automatically assumed that they might be all like that. And so you had to sort of uh, nip that in the bud. And, you know, he started to revoke a lot of licenses. In Daly's 21 years as mayor, hundreds of bars lost their licenses. By the time his son, Richard M. Daly, was elected in 1989, there were only about half as many bars as there'd been in the 40s. But nonetheless, the second Daly had some of the same concerns his father did, that certain taverns could attract crime or bring down neighborhoods. And, you know, people kind of went with it. And so here's where we see the decline, part two. It became much harder to have a tavern license under the second mayor daily. His liquor commissioner called it a crackdown. There was an increase in stings, where the police would try to catch bars serving minors and then take away their liquor licenses. And dozens of precincts voted to ban liquor sales, something the mayor strongly encouraged. Bar owners pushed back against these policies in court, but there was only so much they could do. And as old bars closed, the city made sure that new bars wouldn't just spring up in their place. Mike Mattarello remembers trying to open his Boys Town nightclub called Circuit in the 90s. Well, there was a bunch of elderly uh, ladies that saw other establishments in the area 
that weren't operating properly. So they thought that, well, another bar would just bring the same thing and make it worse. Monterello had to fight his neighbors for years before he finally got his liquor license. By the time Daly left office in 2011, the number of bars had plummeted to 1,100. Since then, it's only continued to drop. And as for the drop in numbers that Jake mentioned, the pandemic certainly doesn't help matters. Our question asker, Patrick, worries that even more historic pubs and taverns will close. You know, they were here and then we wake up and, you know, they're gone. Despite this, he does manage to have a pint half full view. He's noticed two bars in his neighborhood of North Center coming together and figuring out how to turn the parking lot in between the buildings into a shared outdoor space for guests. And he has a theory that fewer opportunities to run into pals over the spring and summer has led to a more intentional form of connection. I mean, I think it's forced us to reach out to our friends more often than we had in the past. Historian Liz Garibay agrees that bars and patrons are adapting. A lot of the old school spots she frequents aren't open because they don't have patios or food permits. But I know of a couple bars who were like, well, how do we serve food? She says many older bars have applied for permits to have pizza ovens. Garibay believes in the resiliency of bars. She thinks the GoFundMe campaigns that have been set up to support the staff of these establishments is part of this. Bars are more about the people than the product. This is going to be an opportunity for for us to resurrect that sense of community that was so important to a lot of these 19th century businesses. And an update from when we first ran the story. Sadly, Wanda Keurig of Stanley's has passed away. But Stanley's is still open, and you can get a hot lunch from 11 to 2. Oh, and one more thing. Summer is winding down, which means schools across the country are starting back up, and they're welcoming students back in a very different way this year. Even across the Chicago region, learning routines are looking and feeling totally different. So over the past couple of weeks, we've been checking in with students, families, and teachers about what they're expecting from their first weeks back. People like Michael Rodriguez, a drama teacher in the Evanston-Skokie School District. The school year is surreal that it's already here. But I think this is going to be a really interesting opportunity for educators to really test the boundaries of what we are able to do. The first time around when schools were closed, we were just reacting and we were frantically trying to figure out how to instill any source of regularity for our students. But this time around, we've been planning for it. And there's going to be some failures, absolutely, but we're resilient. So I'm kind of looking forward to this school year in a weird way. Um, And maybe ask me again in two months how that excitement has actually manifested itself. We will. We'll check back in with Michael. And over the next couple of months, we want to keep hearing from you about how school is going. This week, we're curious about what the first week of school was like. Was it what you expected? How'd it go? Let us know. Whether you're a school employee, a student, parent, guardian, or teacher, send us a voice memo at curiouscity at wbez.org or leave us a voicemail 
at 888-789-7752. That's 888-789-7752. Make sure to include your name and school, and you might be the one we include in next week's podcast. Support for Curiosity comes from the Conant Family Foundation. I'm Linnea Dominic. information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Before we start the show, we here at Curious City want to let you in on a little-known fact about WBEZ. 89% of all our funding comes from community support, including contributions from curious listeners like you. If this program has changed how you see Chicago, please consider supporting this program at wbez.org curious. Thank you.